Hey everybody, this is Mike Wardrop from Encounter Church Adelaide and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you can have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our preaching team. We're going to talk about some creativity blockers tonight, the three big ones. But before we get to that, I want to tell you about my creativity because I'm a storyteller. I love stories. I'm a, I'm a, I'll write, I'll blog, I'll write poems, I'll sing, I'll read, I'll speak. It's always been the story. I've always known the power of a good story. In fact, when I was growing up, I used to uh, go to a church where there was a lady who owned a bookstore, and um, our family was quite close friends with her. And one time, my parent, my mum had to go to an appointment, and instead of bothering with a babysitter or taking me to the appointment, she literally just dropped me off. I was like eight years old. She dropped me off at the bookstore and I just read for three hours. Like, this is the kind of kid I was. So sometimes people are like, well, guess you're getting your own back with your high energy kids. No, I'm not. I sat in a corner and read for three hours. This is not what I deserved as a child, as a teenager, adult, maybe. So that was me. And this lady, every year for Christmas, for every child that was even peripherally involved with the church, she would gift them with a book. She would buy a book for their age group that she'd thought about and prayed over and gave it to them because this woman knew the power of a story. The power of a story. Stories have immense power over our lives. And I want to talk tonight about the greatest story. So that's one story in my life. Here's another story. Started school when I was four years old. I started school so long ago that they had three terms, not four. This is not a lie. This is not a bit. They had three terms instead of four. So this was literally the last year they had it is when I started. So I did one term of reception, like a longish term, and then I did reception properly. So when I was four, I started reception for this one term. And I had a teacher called Mrs. Connell. And I'm four, okay? So I don't have tons of memories. But this might be my earliest memory. It's being in school at age four and drawing a picture. I've got this vivid image of the desk I was at and the picture. I, was, I couldn't tell you what the picture is I was drawing, probably my family or something as kids do. And I remember Mrs. Connell coming behind and looking at my picture and saying, well, that's not very good work, is it? Is that really your best? Is that all you can do? Who does that to a four-year-old? Who does that? I mean, like... Can I say, in hindsight, Mrs. Connell probably had a point. Like, art is not my strongest suit. When, when I draw things, people generally go, oh, is this interpretive? Like, no, 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 this is just meant to be still life. You just can't tell because I'm terrible. But you don't tell that to a four-year-old because a four-year-old is replete with creative possibilities. A four-year-old imagines something and births it into life. A four-year-old doesn't have a sense of what is possible and impossible, and they dream the impossible into being, and they do it through all the creative arts, through dance and song and creative play and drawing and writing and all sorts of things. So I don't know what kind of mentality you have to have to look at a four-year-old and go, your drawings aren't up to scratch. I don't know where you have to be in life to do that. So I was sharing this story with a friend of mine a few years ago who I was at primary school with. And I started sharing and I started talking about the, the kind of the cruelty of this first memory I have. And he just stopped and he's like, that's, that's my first memory too. I was like, what do you mean? Were you sitting with me? And he's like, no, 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 no. This happened to me too. I was in her class and she told me my work was rubbish, that my drawings were no good. 
Now, I have no idea what was going on in Mrs. Connell's home life. I hope everything was okay. But what I do know is when she came to school, she put a burden on children. That she told children that their possibilities were smaller than their imagination. That she took the concepts and dreams and chances and hopes that we had and shrunk them. And if it happened to me and if it happened to my friend, you can be sure it happened to others. This is the importance of the stories being spoken over our lives. Because I joke about it and say that I'm no good at art, but who knows how much of that was because when I was four, I said, ah, well, there's not really much point kicking on, is there? Who knows how much of this I sow into my own children unconsciously. There are stories in our lives and they have power if we let them. And we need to know, friends, you and I, what the stories are that are being spoken into our lives. Because whoever tells the greatest story shapes the culture. From my guy, Erwin McManus, whoever tells the best story shapes the culture. I've I've spoken about Erwin a lot this series. He's a guru. I just highly recommend his book, The Artisan Soul. If you're the creative type and not the reading type, it is for you. Okay? Great book. Easy read. And he's right. Whoever tells the best story shapes the culture. So we need to be aware of the story spoken into our lives. Now, there are always forces around us in our lives trying to shape us, speaking stories over us. And the ancient Christians, going as far back as the early, early apostles, had these terms for them. And they've fallen out of use a bit, but they're so important. We know them, name them, and consider them. And they are these, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. These are the narratives that threaten to derail your story. These are the stories being spoken out over our lives that we so often don't even realize. And tonight, what I want to do is dig into each of them. I want to explain them a little bit. I want to unpack what their narratives are so that we're not blind to them, but we can understand them. And then I want to talk about how we can defeat them. And then I want to talk about the greatest story. Spoilers, it may involve the Bible. So let's, let's look at St. John of the Cross, as I, you knew I was going to say tonight. A 16th century Christian mystic recommended reading for all of you. He's got this small book called The Precautions, and The Precautions are all about how we watch out for the world, the flesh, and the devil. He has a more famous book called The Dark Night of the Soul, where he wrestles with the angst that comes when we feel it with an absence of God. But in The Precautions, St. John of the Cross talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he says this, All the harm the soul receives is born of these enemies, the world, the devil, and the flesh. To gain complete mastery over any of these three enemies, one must vanquish all three of them. And in the weakening of one, the other two are weakened also. Now, each of these three forces plays a different role in damaging your soul. So let's start with the world. Let's start with the world. What do we mean when we say the world? Because I know a lot of times when when I hear a Christian or a preacher talk about the world, often it's in a sense like, Everything out there is bad. Let's come in here where it's safe. That's like a nuclear bomb bunker mentality. That's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about is the cultural narratives that speak into our lives that we need to go against us. The world is the culture around us. It's the day-to-day life we live and the choices we make instinctively, barely without knowing. The late author David Foster Wallace put it this way. 
He says, there's, this is, there's a story, he says, where he goes, there were two young fish swimming along in the water one day, and the older fish came, came past them and said, morning, boys, how's the water? And kept swimming. And the two young fish kept swimming before one turned to the other and said, what the heck is water? Because that's what culture is like. We don't realize we're swimming in it. We don't realize it's shaping us. We don't even realize it's the air we breathe half the time until we stop and look back at how it's shaping us. A staggering amount of decisions in our lives, friends, are made simply because it's the cultural norm to do so. But as Christians, as followers of Jesus, if that's who we are here, we're not called to be influenced by the culture. We're actually called to be influencers over the culture. And so we need to understand what the predominant cultural narratives are, the subtle ones, right? Like not the really obvious ones, but the subtle ones that are influencing our lives. So I want to look at a few of them very quickly. So these are not all the cultural narratives. It's impossible to name them all because they're changing and growing and, and evolving. But here's one, here's one that I think is critical, radical individualism. Radical individualism. Some of you may know that there are basically two forms of society. There are individual societies and collective societies. And broadly speaking, if you cut the world in half, the West is individual and the East is collective. But what we're finding and what researchers and psychologists are finding is that the entire world is dragging more individual. So what exactly is individualism? It's the philosophy that the individual is the highest moral good. The highest moral good, which means if you value something, it must be true. I'll say that again. Individualism is the philosophy that the individual is the highest moral good. So if you value something, that therefore, by definition, makes it true. If you as an individual are the highest moral good, you have feelings, you have desires, you have thoughts and principles and philosophies and ideologies, and you go, I value this. If you are the highest moral good, that is true, whether it's actually true or not. Now, we, I think if you start thinking about news cycles, you'll be able to pick this up. But let's, let's talk about an idea. What about if someone else values something different? Well, it's an individualism, so that's true for them. It's not true for me, but it's true for them. At some point, one of us needs to echo Pontius Pilate, which we didn't think we would do, and say, what is truth in this case? What is truth if it's true for you and not true for me? And individualism can seem like a positive thing because people get to express themselves until you suddenly realize that it has to do with separation from community. It has to do with tolerance, not love. It's something that draws people apart. It doesn't bring them together. Because the whole truth for you thing works if you're over there. If you're sitting across the table from me, that's all right. But as soon as you say, hey, this might be good for you too, if it goes against one of my ideologies, automatically I'm being attacked, I'm triggered, I'm targeted, don't you dare, all right? This is, this is what individualism does. Let's look at the second one, deconstructionism. All these isms. Deconstructionism is the idea that every idea needs to be broken down to the nth degree until it's in its separate elements and can be examined and considered. Now, this comes from the idea that all structures are oppressive and there's value in this, right? There is value in deconstructing an idea to understand it better. But here's three problems with deconstructionism. The first is this. Deconstructing something is only worthwhile if it leads to reconstruction. Right? It's only worthwhile if it leads to reconstruction. We were in growth track earlier, and, and Josh was sharing about how he, you know, he's a mechanic. He'll pull 
um, engines apart. Guess what? It's only worthwhile pulling an engine apart if you're going to put it back together. <laughs> Otherwise, or sell it for parts, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> but even then, there's something of value coming out of it, isn't there? You've got to be able to build something back up. And the problem with deconstructionism is it's just deconstructing, which leads me to the second point, that it offers you freedom but not direction. Freedom but not direction. If you're deconstructing an idea, that means you get to choose entirely. You are free to follow it or not. But when you've got no structures to trust in, there's no direction. Wow, I wonder why we are all so anxious. We don't trust in any structures. Now, there's reasons behind that, right? There are tragic reasons why we're having royal commissions into everything. But when we don't trust in structures at all, we have no guidance, no direction. And here's the final point about deconstructionism. It offers a high level of cynicism, right? We get, I, I forgot to put the image in, but there's a classic Simpsons gag from like 20 years ago, maybe longer, where these teenagers are at a Smashing Pumpkins concert. And one of them's like, these guys are great. And the, others, the other turns to him and goes, dude, are you being sarcastic? And he just pauses and sadly says, I don't even know anymore. And that's what it's like. We are in this post-ironic culture where we don't even know if we're being genuine or not. Have any of you ever done that? You say something, you're like, am I, am I saying this genuinely? Or am I saying it to be heard? Or am I, be, or am I saying it? Like you start breaking down. Maybe it's just me. But, but you start breaking down your own motivations going, what? why did I say that? What, am I just wanting attention? What's going on here? This is what deconstruction leads to. This cynicism that breaks us absolutely breaks us. And the final narrative I want to bring to you is probably a more obvious one, and that's instant gratification. Ding! There's a notification on your phone right now to tell you more about it, right? The idea behind instant gratification is not only should you have your desires met, you should have them met right now. Right now. Delayed gratification is when we're willing to sacrifice our present impulses for a better future outcome. Has anybody seen the classic cookies YouTube kit, uh, clip where these kids are brought in front of the camera and they said, hey, hey, buddy, um, I'm going to give this, you this cookie right now. I'm going to put it on the table in front of you. And if you want to, you can eat it. But if you wait five minutes, I'll give you a second cookie. And uh, like, honestly, when you get home, Google it. It's amazing. There's a response of these children just staring at the cookie. Some of them just stare at it for grim death. Some like go off and walk in the corner and turn their back on the cookie. You know, others sort of just pick the edge of the cookie, just like, just like brush off some crumbs off the edge. Oh, I'm not really eating it, but I am eating it. This is why we're not good with delayed gratification. So I think that one's the easiest one to understand. But what does that mean for the narrative of your life? Well, when the predominant story of the world is instant gratification, it's very hard to wait patiently to hear the voice of God, let alone wait for Jesus to return. When we're deconstructing everything, living in a post-truth world, it's hard to come to church and trust that what I'm saying has value because trusting a structure like church is difficult in a deconstructed world. And there are, again, tragic, genuine reasons why that's the case but it still speaks a story out over your life. When we're living in a post-ironic culture, it's hard to earnestly, genuinely follow Jesus without being cynical about our own intentions, like I said, and radical individualism. The idea that our preferences are the highest moral good makes it absolutely impossible to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Jesus. How can you die to yourself 
when you are the highest moral good. It's so difficult. Now, very few of us look in the mirror and go, hey there, you're the highest moral good. (laughs) But it's the way we live our lives. It's the way we allow ourselves to be shaped by our preferences. We put our preferences over Christ. So how, the natural fruit of this narrative, by the way, that the world whispers in your ear is we don't trust Jesus' truth and we don't follow him because it requires self-denial, submission, and delayed gratification. So how do we defeat this narrative? The world can be stopped by simply placing the authority of the Bible over the authority of your own preferences. It's actually as simple as that, conceptually. You've got to live it out. But as a concept, it's that simple. Can I take the authority of Scripture and place it above my own preferences? And if even now you're feeling like, why should I? You may have answered your own question. But I'd encourage you to consider that. That's the world. Let's talk about the flesh. The flesh. St. John of the Cross again says this. The world is the enemy least difficult to conquer. The devil is the hardest to understand, but the flesh is the most tenacious. And its attacks continue as long as the old self lasts. If the world is the culture around us, the flesh is the desires within us. The desires within us. Each of us are pushed and pulled by primal desires that Paul used to frequently talk about in his letters. He called them the flesh. Think human nature. Frankly, think animal urges. Think primal, primal impulses. Paul uses the flesh to describe sinful desires that well up from within us. So if you want to get a grasp on what this might be, think of children and their first desire to look at something and go, I want that. I want that. And what do they do if they don't get it? They cry because they deserve it, right? I want it. I want it. Give me that right now. It's linked into the gratification stuff, but it comes from this primal place within us that says, give me that. I want it. Give me that. I want it. One simple way to understand whether the flesh is the primary influence in your life is to see what happens when you're denied what you want. How do you respond when someone steals that car park from you? No, I know the answer, but (laughs) just saying. What is your reaction to the denial of the flesh? But what are its narratives? Well, we hear in Galatians 5 some of the narratives of the flesh. We hear the works of the flesh are, Paul says this, this is the message version. It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Listen to this. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, Ugly parodies of community, I could go on. Paul finishes by saying, this isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. So in the New Testament, one thing is clear. The flesh equals sin, disobedience and rejection of God. But sometimes the narratives of the flesh are a bit more subtle than that. So, I mean, sometimes it's really obvious, like, oh, she's hot, you know, like classic male flesh response. But... Sometimes it's more subtle than that. Sometimes it's like, oh, I'm looking forward to that holiday. 
I've earned it. Okay. Thought your whole life was a gift from God. It's like, oh, no, it's just been a massive week, retail therapy time. Really? Okay. I thought we lived in a world where we had enough food and money for the entire world, and now what, we, we earn this? We earn this? This is what the flesh does. It tweaks us, right? And the flesh, oh, what about this? It's been a big week today. I might just skip church. See, you're all here, so you can feel good. People are listening to this on the podcast and like, you don't know me. It has been a big week. I'm sure it has. I'm sure it has. I'm more excited when people are like, I love church so much, I'm coming here on the way to the airport before I go to London. Am I right? Come on. That's what I'm talking about. The flesh is almost inseparable from lust. Because lust is all about an unstoppable desire to have exactly what you want when you want it. This is what the flesh does in our lives. The flesh tells a story that if your body isn't given what it desires, you're unfulfilled. And we all know what it feels like to wrestle with the flesh, right? Like it's the most obvious one. But it's also the most persistent. So what happens when we let the flesh write our life story? What happens? Well, when lust wins... So does objectification. When greed wins, so does poverty. When sexual immorality wins, so does divorce. When anger wins, so does violence. When envy wins, so does bitterness. When drunkenness wins, so does addiction. When the flesh writes a story for your life of what you feel you need, society starts to break down. And it's dangerous because it merges with individualism. I'm allowed to get what I need, and why not? Because I'm the highest moral good. When we merge that together, we come to a dangerous place Well, and where we not only do it, but we celebrate it and affirm it. Welcome to 2019, everybody. This is the air we breathe. But here's how we fight it. There's another side in all of Paul's writings in Galatians 5. He says, yes, beware the sins of the flesh. But in every case, he says, forget that and follow the Spirit of God. Keep in step with the Spirit. Paul encourages people to live by the Spirit and says that the fruits of the Spirit are profoundly different from the fruits of the flesh. Here's what he says they are. The fruits of the Spirit of God in your life are love, joy, peace, patience. Stop me if you've heard this before. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, 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 self-control. If you want to stop the sins of the flesh, self-control. Control is the fruit of the Spirit you need to be exhibiting. Stay in step with the Spirit so you can have control over your own body. You can do it. It can be done. You get the drift, right? To defeat the narrative of the flesh, subject your flesh to the Spirit of God. Keep in step with the Spirit. Let's go on to the last one. We'll keep moving. There's a bit in here tonight. Let's talk about the devil, as I knew you thought I'd say when you came to church tonight. The devil is the enemy against us. Now, it's a topic really worth unpacking and expanding because the amount of mistakes we make when talking about the devil is probably more than anything else in Christian theology. But it is the enemy against us. The presence of evil in the world demands an answer. The Bible points to the existence of a personal evil in the world, a spiritual being called the devil, or sometimes the Satan, which is a Hebrew word, which means accuser or adversary, one who comes against. 
Jesus refers to the devil as the father of lies. John says that the devil is the one who is in the world. The devil is an adversarial spiritual being wanting to cause you to sin against God. Let me throw it to my homie, Nicky Gumbel. This is what he says the devil does as his four tactics. Number one, doubt. The devil makes us question God's attributes, his promises, his character, and his very existence. We've all been there. Temptation. He leads us away from God's will and towards our own fleshly desires, and we say things like, I really shouldn't, but... And that's fine when it's a biscuit, but it's when that narrative is going on in our minds about things we're not saying out loud. The third is deception. The devil misleads us about God's intentions and about our own hearts, which are way more fickle than we think they are, but also misleads us about who he is and his intentions. He's the father of lies. He sometimes appears as an angel of light. He tries to convince us he doesn't exist. All of this happens so that he can deceive us. As it says in The Usual Suspects, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And the final one is condemnation. Convincing us we are unworthy of the love of God, and so we can't receive the forgiveness of God. We can't walk in the grace of God. And guys, condemnation is such a simple tactic, and it works so well against the God of love. It does. I'm sorry to say, because all it does is the devil just whispers in your ear, how could God possibly love you? If God is love and you're you, how could that work? That's how condemnation happens. But we hear again in Romans that there is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. None. So what does that mean for the narratives of your life? This one is tricky. Because the devil is a deceiver and a liar, and because we live in a world that demands proof of everything, as Christians, we tend to run to one of two extremes. The first is that we run over here, and every time like a bird poops on your car, you're like, oh, the devil's involved. Start praying that away. Like, no, nature's involved. Like, if a bird poops in your car, maybe the devil's involved. <laughs> but if it's on your car, get, yeah, it's nature. It's bad luck. Deal with it. Yeah, pray the poo away. If it works, please tell me. That sounds amazing. <laughs> But the more common extreme is we run to the other extreme. And we go, well, no, no, we don't want to make the devil behind everything. And so we make it behind nothing. Which means that when spiritual warfare come, comes along and you are getting oppressed by dark spiritual forces, you don't know what to do. This is the more common place. That's a better caricature. That's a better straw man argument. But most Christians I meet live in the other place. Like, oh, no, yeah, the devil. I mean, you know. Satan isn't even his name. Like, yeah, like that's, that's true, but that's not the answer to the question. <laughs> Thanks. Well done for going to Bible college, you know? Like, so in the narratives of your life, the devil will come to cast doubt on what you know about God, to tempt you away from a life shaped in Jesus' image, to deceive you with false intentions and condemn you for actions that, and get this, condemn you for actions that he inspired. He will tempt you down a sinful path, then lead you to condemnation for what he tried to do in your life. That's the actions of the devil. And we just call you out. Genesis 3, the fruit being picked off the tree. Right? Let's look at this. What does the serpent say to Eve? Did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden? No, God didn't say that. That's a lie, but he's sowing doubt in Eve's mind. Then he tells her that you'll not die. That's deception. And tells her that there's great benefits. You will see like God sees. You have all the knowledge of good and evil. Temptation. So she plucks the fruit 
and eats it, and he slithers off to watch as Adam and Eve notice their nakedness and in their shame for the first time feel the need to cover up as they sense this guilt and condemnation. This is the narrative that the devil does in our lives. As my guy Irwin says, Adam and Eve silence the voice of God and they choose a lesser narrative for themselves. Doubt, deception, temptation, condemnation, these are the tactics of the devil. So how do we defeat the devil? This is how we defeat the devil, with scripture. Old school, I know, it's very Bible bashy of me. Ugh! This is how we defeat the devil. We learn scripture, we memorize scripture, and we use it as a weapon because the promises of God are our defense against the lies of the enemy. How do I know that? Because it's what Jesus did. Jesus has gone through everything we've gone through. Jesus went into the desert in Matthew chapter 4. We specifically hear some of the unpacking of this temptation. And he goes through these three temptations. And the devil says, if you're really the son of God, you've been fasting, you're hungry, make these stones become bread. Right? The flesh. I'm hungry. Make me full. I want it. And Jesus says, no, delayed gratification. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in God. So he takes him up to a high pinnacle, and he basically says, prove yourself. Throw yourself off. You're really the son of God. The angels will come. What did everyone say who was doubting Jesus in his ministry? They said, prove it. How can you be the son of God? This is the world coming against Jesus. And Jesus says, no, I don't need to prove myself. I don't need to do that. And he comes against the devil with scripture. And finally, the devil, and he uses scripture because the devil is a manipulator. He's a deceiver. He'll take the truth and twist it into a lie. The devil says, bow down before me and I'll give you all the cities of the world. Now, Jesus' mission was to reach all the world. But he didn't need the devil to do it. So he said, get behind me, Satan. has written, you will serve the Lord your God and God alone. The flesh, the world, the devil. Three temptations coming against Jesus, we do not have a saviour who is unfamiliar with our sufferings. Okay? I think some of you might need to hear that tonight. Is this good? All right. It's long, but let me power through because this is important. I'm going to ignore Joseph's story just for a minute. I've got some stuff on Joseph, but you can ask me about that afterwards. But the world, the flesh, and the devil are in the story of Joseph as well. And you've heard the story of Joseph. We've been talking about it for years. Weeks. Let's go with weeks. <laughs> you should have heard how off topic I went in growth track. It was amazing. I totally lost my way. It was incredible. Haven't lost my way here. Stay with me. We're talking about the greatest story, which begs the question, what's the greatest story? Because I'm a reader, right? I know stories. I love stories. These are just books off my shelf. And the great stories are all stories that echo the great story. The greatest stories are one that echo the story of Jesus Christ. Harry Potter. You read him? You know what Harry does? He's a savior figure. He's a Christ figure. Why? Because J.K. Rowling was brought up with a Christian faith and she can't get away from it. She's admitted it. She doesn't call herself a Christian, but she can't get away from it. The greatest stories, the best-selling stories that we know echo the story of Christ. 
Crime and Punishment, one of the great works of literature written by Dostoevsky, a passionate Christian who loved Jesus more than anything else and was obsessed with the nature of repentance and guilt and shame. So he wrote this novel that has become one of the greatest works of English literature ever. Game of Thrones. Now this is interesting. I'm going to get back to Game of Thrones. Lord of the Rings. Jeez. Whew, heavy. Lord of the Rings is perhaps the great story. It's, it's the most complete, beautiful, staggering work of somebody who understands salvation and grace and has put it forward. What I'm saying is here are more than a thousand pages of somebody who says, Jesus is so important, I have to find a way to share the story on purpose. The line, the witch in the wardrobe. Same Z's, but for kids. But you should read it. Incredible. I'm reading this with my boys right now, with Charlie and Noah. And every, like, I almost cry, like every three pages. I was just reading the bit where the beavers talk about Aslan and like, the first mention of it. And it's, it just gets you. Because what it talks about is the first time you hear the name of Jesus. And you hear somebody say, Jesus is for you. He is your saviour. And you recognise that something is happening within you because the spirit is taking hold. That's the line, the witch in the wardrobe. Back to Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones is different. Game of Thrones is someone who objectively looked at Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, not the Bible, but Lord of the Rings, and went, that's an amazing story. How do I make it like that, but more objective? So there's somebody that's recognized the truth of the gospel at work within the Lord of the Rings and hasn't realized that what made it so powerful was the presence of God within it. And so you have these books which are page-turners, well-written, but absolutely devoid of life and love. That's what you need from the gospel. I wonder what the stories are that you've allowed to take hold over your life. I wonder who the Mrs. Connells have been in your life who have spoken something into you at an early age and you've taken that on yourself rather than the identity of Christ. I wonder what the narratives that the world, the flesh and the devil have been whispering in your ear that you've allowed to take root and say, you know, that's true, that's me. Because Jesus is trying to give you another story. Let me tell you one last story. I'm an adopted child. Uh, I, there's a story that can be told about my life that would go something like this. Uh, a story in which before I was even born, I was rejected. A story in which I'm left alone in a hospital ward, crying with nobody to hear me. A story in which I'm a lucky quirk of fate, one checked box away from being an abortion statistic. A story in which I'm unloved by the parents who are meant to love me. That's a story I could have allowed to take hold over my life. That's a story I could have said, that's true, that's the narrative. Because all of them, you, you think about them in, in sort of black and white, none of them are out and out untrue, but that's how the devil gets in your ear. But I'm an adopted child, and that means I had parents who chose to adopt me. And those parents told a different story over my life, and they did, and they did it deliberately. They told a story in which I was loved so much by them that my birth parents who loved me could do nothing else but give me these parents that desperately wanted a baby. 
They told a story in which they loved me even more, in which I was not rejected, but chased down, pursued, desired. They told a story in which I'm desperately loved and cherished, and I heard that and owned that and claimed it. And there is a story, in short, that they told me about a father who adopts me into his family out of sheer kindness and love and calls me his son. Stop me if you've heard this before. It's the same story that God is speaking over your life. God is chasing you down. He calls you daughter. He calls you son. And every time the world, the flesh, or the devil rises up for one reason or another to get in your ear, God is saying, no, I have adopted you. I have chosen you. I am calling you home. You are mine. And that's not a greed thing. That's not a control thing. That, my friends, is a love thing. That is a grace. That is an offer of open arms. Paul puts it this way in Romans. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were in the midst of our brokenness, while we were letting the narratives of destruction rule over our lives, Christ died for us then. Not when we'd made it to the good place. Not when we'd... Betray, when we showed attributes as if we were like Jesus, but then, then, back then, when we were in that place of brokenness, Christ died for you then. And there are some of you here in this room, you need to know that. It's not about becoming good, from going from bad to good. It's going from dead to alive, and you can only do that because of Christ. You can only do that because of Christ. You received, as Tom said before, the spirit of adoption. By whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, a great band, but that's not what we're talking about. No, Abba is this Middle Eastern word that means daddy. It's this affectionate word of love to say this is what you get to call God. And you go back to that condemnation that you look at before. Those moments where you look in the mirror and you're like, I've failed. I've let everyone down. In that moment, God still chose to die for you. In that moment, in your worst moment and in your best, God said, I look at you, I see you, I love you. You are called home. The key to rejecting the bad stories, the false narratives that threaten to take control over our lives is making sure we know the good one. Because there is a great story from which every other great story takes its inspiration, a story which begins with two people in freedom and ends with all humanity in freedom. A story that comes from a Middle Eastern landowner who has as many descendants as the stars in the sky and from whom tribes come to create a nation. A story that sees a nation become a kingdom with a king called Jesus. A story in which King Jesus, the true son of God, the true story of life in all its fullness and goodness and love, lays down his life for you. The great story of all creation your creative capacity and mine is fulfilled in Jesus. When he opens a way to God to say, you are daughters, you are sons, and none of our lives matter unless we can catch that narrative. No matter what we do externally, like Elena was sharing before, unless we have that internal narrative, that identity where we say, I am found in Christ, and all I am comes from that, we've got nothing. We've got nothing. But in Christ, we have everything. Jesus' story is your story. He's calling you sons. He's calling you daughters. And the question is simply this. 
if whoever tells the best story shapes the culture, what story are you letting shape your life? What story are you letting shape your life in Counter Church? Do you ever wonder why you feel so anxious? Wonder why you feel defeated, disillusioned, exhausted? You're letting the wrong story shape your life. Maybe it's the narratives of culture around you that you're just saying the waves are so strong, it's just easy to go along with the current, and it is easier, but it's not following Jesus. And maybe it's the narratives of the flesh rising up within you, and you say, I want that, and either they're driving you to pain and addiction and brokenness, or the repercussions from it have left you in a state of brokenness, and you're claiming that as your identity, but that is not your identity. That is not what defines who you are. Your health, your life stage, your relationship status doesn't define who you are. Or maybe it's the devil whispering in your ear, doubt, deceit, temptation, condemnation, outright lies. We've got to train ourselves to listen to the voice of God. If you feel torn in multiple directions, it's because you're listening to the wrong story. Thanks so much for listening. We'd love to hear from you. For more information and resources, please check out our website, encounteradelaide.com.au. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on your podcast provider. Have an amazing day. God bless.